So we're in the book of Luke, chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a long sermon that's recorded in this um, statement called Luke, chapter 12. And in this passage, Christ says, you know, there, there were thousands of people tripping over one another trying to get to Christ. And so Christ looks at the people around him and he says to them, to his disciples, he says, be, be, be very careful about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one to be seen as something that you really are not. Hypocrisy involves playing to many, many people instead of an audience of one because Jesus says in verses two and three, there's nothing that is concealed that will not be disclosed. And what you whisper in the inner room, in the ear, will be shouted from the rooftops. So, so don't, don't be a hypocrite. Uh, understand you play to an audience of one. And then he says, this is the way you conquer hypocrisy. Number one, you, you reverence, you honor, you worship the living God. He says, don't, don't fear people who can only kill you, but you reverence the one who after your dead has the ability to consign you to eternal judgment or eternal happiness. You reverence God. Secondly, he says, you acknowledge the Son and you follow Him. You glory in Christ and you confess Him before men. And he says, thirdly, you welcome the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and opens it to our understanding and exalts the name of Christ. So that's the type of people you ought to be as you conquer hypocrisy. So he's given this sermon. And in the middle of the address, somebody in the crowd says, Rabboni, teacher, tell my older brother to share the family business with me. And Jesus says, he says, who made me an arbitrator in a family dispute? But he seizes the moment. And he talks about a parable that is well known. And he says this in verse 15, he says, be very careful and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he gives a parable about a man who was, Jesus calls him a fool. He was a man who lived as if there was no God. And when I preached this two weeks ago, I said there are four steps to being a dim-witted Foolish man. And I said this. First of all, the man had no concept that God gives good gifts. It was all about him. Secondly, he had only one counselor, one person he looked to for wisdom, and that was himself. He said to himself, I have this, I have this, I have that. The third step to being a dim-witted, foolish man is to have a presumptuous attitude regarding life. You, you plan your life and you plan your life and you plan your life with no concept of God. Then the fourth step to being a dim-witted man is to have no understanding of the brevity of life or the eternal nature of things to come. Because the scripture says here that, that after he built bigger barns, he had no idea that the Lord would say, you fool, today your life is over, is done with. And so after taking that side road, Jesus gets back to his teaching. And he says this, it's a well-known passage. You've read it many times if you've been a Christian very long, but it's so profound. He says this, verse 24, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as this, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you that Solomon in all of his regal splendor was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. Seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. To me, this, this is the key to the text. I want you to get this. Jesus says, therefore, in verse 30, 22, therefore refers to the previous discussion. Okay? So this is what I believe the text is saying. The man who builds bigger barns and the individual who is consumed and paralyzed by worry come from the same world view. I'll explain. The bigger barns man says this. He says, you know, it's all about me. It's all about what I can do in the barns I can build and what I can store up. It's all about me giving no thought to God. An individual who's paralyzed with fear and worry and is consumed with what might happen or what might be, that, that individual operates in a worldview that says, I can see creation around me. I can see order and symmetry and beauty. But, but, but this God who made the heavens and the earth must be the deistic God who made everything and walked away. So, so he, he's out there, but he's way, way out there, and he's not involved in my life. And see, Jesus is taking a sledgehammer, and he's beating that worldview down to the ground. So in this whole issue of worry, a couple of things. First of all, see that link, the link between brazen, arrogant, and, and man, and someone who believes in an anemic God who cannot be defined, who's absentee. That's why I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, this first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has purchased for all of my sin and not a hair can fall from my head without my Father's knowledge. Boom. I'm forgiven. I'm cared for. I'm embraced. I'm watched over. So, now let me say this also. Everyone here, everyone here worries. Everyone worries. Worry is part of being in a fallen world. This world is not perfect. We, we worry about diseases. We worry about hurricanes. We worry about our children, our family. I mean, this is a, this is a panic button. You, you hear that panic button occasionally. But the person Jesus is addressing here keeps their finger or their, their hand on the panic button all the time. 
So, so we worry. There is a worry scale. Some worry more, some worry less. But we all worry. And some people aren't worriers, and that's just your personality. It's not because you're spiritual. It's just because you're made kind of laid back. My wife, I talking to her about worrying and about the sermon and went through all these steps. And then I said, what do you think? She said, well, let me, let me say this. She said, I would be much happier if you worried more. I said, well, I don't, I don't see that in the text, but you know, thanks for sharing that. She said, so, so um, Lily Tomlin did a play, a sort of one-act play, and she, she's very funny. She used to be on Saturday Night Live years ago. But she said some things about worry, and I think one or two were very profound. Some were just humor. She said this, uh, I, I worry that so many things cause cancer in lab rats because their lab lifestyle is so stressful. I worry about reflective flea collars. Oh, sure, drivers can see them glow in the dark, but so can fleas. I worry that if olive oil comes from olives and peanut oil comes from peanuts, where does baby oil come from? Someone once, she says, someone once asked Daniel Boone if he had ever been lost. Now, I, this is just, I don't think, I've never read this before. I am the great, great, great grandson of Daniel Boone. It's a true story. True. Daniel Boone. Me. That's why I don't need a GPS. I just get places. <laughs> I am related to Daniel Boone. I really am. Anyway, someone asked Daniel Boone if he'd ever been lost. He says, no, I can't say I was ever lost, but I was bewildered once for three whole days. <laughs> I worry that I've been lost and bewildered most of my life, she says. Like the time I bought a waste paper basket and carried it home in a bag. And when I got home, I put the paper bag in the waste paper basket. She says, I worry. And I want you to understand, the title of the sermon was not How to Conquer Worry or how to obliterate worry, is how to handle worry. How do you handle it? Do you know how to obliterate it? You handle it. We live in a fallen world. So, four points. Number one, anxiety or worry is part of a fact of living in a fallen world. The issue is not necessarily worrying, it's how I handle worry. For example, just some scriptures. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, present your requests to God. So, so when Paul was writing the church at Philippi, he was presupposing that they were going to be anxious at times. If, if you're not presupposing people are going to be anxious, you don't say, don't be anxious, but pray. Or, or 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord. Now, again, that text presupposes you'll have anxieties because you have to have something to cast. Or Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Presupposes there will be times when we are afraid. So, so to me, I look at it and I go, it's worrying is part of living in a fallen world. There's a book by a man named Patrick Leahy who teaches in the Ivy League entitled uh, The Worry Cure. It's a good little book. It's, it's, all behave, it's about behavior modification, cognitive therapy. 
And in the book, he says, there are seven rules of highly worried people. I just listen out. Number one, if something bad could happen, then it is your responsibility to worry about it. Number two, don't accept any uncertainty. You must be in control. Number three, treat all negative thoughts as if they really are true. Four, anything bad that can happen is a reflection of who you are as a person. It's your fault. Five, failure is unacceptable. Six, get rid of any negative feelings immediately. And number seven, treat everything like it is an emergency. See, that's, you're pushing the panic button. And he says this in the book. Maybe you can get some certainty by getting other people to reassure you. Maybe someone else is a better judge than you are. Go to the doctor as many times as you can afford to and ask her if she can tell you absolutely for sure that there is nothing wrong with you. Or she can tell you that you will never get sick and die. Ask your friends if they think you still look as good as you did last year. Maybe you can catch things before they slide too far. Maybe before you completely fall apart and get sick and lose your money, your job, your friends, and your looks, you can catch it all and reverse it in a supreme heroic effort of self-help. Maybe it's not too late. That's the great thing about demanding certainty in your life. Once again, it's how you handle these things, church, to the glory of God. Number two, therefore, verse 22 connects greed and consuming anxiety. Both reflect the absence of the robust, robust Trinitarian biblical God who rules and reigns as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same mindset. See, the bigger barn God said, there is no God who blesses. The worrier says, there is a God, but he's not involved in my life. He's not Abba Father. He's not a refuge. He's not a strength. This person can never read Psalm 31, 19. It says, how, how vast is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. This person can never say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This person can never pray the prayers of the Bible. This person can never say, God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in time of trouble. This person can never say, the name of the Lord Christ is a strong tower, the righteous run to it and they are safe. Never. In her play, Lily Tommy made the following comment, and I thought, this, was, this, was, this is very significant. She says this, I worry where tonight fits into the cosmic scheme of things. And I worry that there is no cosmic scheme of things. Hmm? This person addressed in Luke 12 says there is no cosmic scheme. It's just random cacophony. It just happens. And I'm saying if you're a child of God and you read the Bible and you know the Father through the work of Jesus on the cross and you have received the Holy Spirit, your birthright is to be a person of faith and dignity who trusts God even in the dark. Who trusts God when things are not always great. So, so you're able to handle the ups and the downs of life. You go to, for example, Luke 12, 32, this beautiful little statement, Jesus says, fear not little flock. Don't you love that? Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure 
to give you the kingdom of God. Little flock, I love that. The shepherding Christ, fear not, little flock. I think of 1 Peter 5, which is one of the texts I mentioned earlier. In 1 Peter 5, it, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due season he can lift you up. And it says this. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Now, I'm going to use hand motion. So, so how do you handle worry? First of all, you, you humble yourself in the presence of God. You say, God, I, I, I can't pull it off. I, I need you, Lord. I need you everywhere. So I'm going to humble myself before you. And as I humble myself before you, God, I'm going to lift my concerns to you. So I humble and I lift, whether it's your, your marriage, your kids, your, your lack of being married, your finances, your health. I'm going to humble myself, almighty God, and I'm going to lift them to you. And as I do that, I'm going to be aware that there's a supernatural warfare going on around me. And there's an adversary that wants to accuse me and beat me up and cause me to doubt your goodness. And I'm going to reject that. So I humble myself, I lift up to you, and, I, and I am, I'm aware. We are in the midst of, as a church, we have this marriage ministry called Reengage, and a number of you are doing it. And I, I, I would hope that every married couple does Reengage. We've been married for five years or 50 years. And really, it's, it's a very basic program, but I think it's so good. And, and as I've thought about it, I thought, you know, it deals with, deals with humility, it deals with grace, it deals with forgiveness, it deals with communication, it deals with expectations, it deals with all these. But as I've, as I've looked at it, here, here's the difference. There are a hundred behavioral modification marriage books and courses you can take. I mean, his needs, her needs. It's all about behavior modification. It's a good book. There's nothing wrong with those. But, but what this program says is, you know, you can read behavior modification books about how to think, but, but we're all about this. If Jesus is not in your marriage, we have nothing really to say to you beyond what they're saying. We're saying that the most important thing you can do is to make Christ the Lord of your home and to walk under the authority of the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you've got to humble yourself before the Lord. You've got to lift up your marriage to Christ and be aware that there's an adversary who wants to pull you down. And, and I, so, so I, I, I love what this program is about because that's how you do it. I was talking to a young man this week. I think he's young. He's 32, which to me is really young. And uh, we were talking. I said, he said, well, I'm, 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 I'm taking reengaged because, because uh, my wife says that our marriage can get in a rut. I said, how many, how many years have you been married? He said, seven I thought, oh my gosh, 37. And we don't have ruts, we have trenches. <laughs> and you can't see the bottom. You drop, you drop, you drop a weight, it doesn't hit. Echo, 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 echo. And you know what? I like it. I like consistency. I'm boring. I go to the same restaurant, the same time of the day, the same day of the week. I mean, I am but I've got to realize in my life that if Christ isn't in my life, in my home, it's not going to happen. I've got to humble myself and understand the warfare. 
Number three, God loves creation. This is an environmentalist panacea here. Jesus talks about the ravens, lilies, grass. God made the ravens. God made the lilies. He says the lilies in all of their splendor put Solomon to shame. God made grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. He says, but most of all, God loves you. God loves men and women made in the image of God. God loves you. And so I, I sit back and I go, wow. God loves creation. God loves ravens. God loves lilies. God loves grass. But God really loves his people. Years ago, I went to a concert in Dallas, Texas, and there was a guy named Burl Ives there. If you, some of you who are older know Burl Ives. And he just had this wonderful voice. And during the concert, he came out and he sang a song. I'm not sure I'd heard it before. That goes, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. You ask me why I'm happy. You ask me why I sing. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Well, here's the story. The story, that song was written in 1905 by a woman named Camelia Hughes. And Mrs. Hughes was going to a Bible conference in upstate New York, and she stayed in the home of some people. I think they were her friends. And she said that the, the woman had for 20 years been in and out of bed, been bedridden for almost 20 years, and her husband was in a wheelchair. And, and yet they were gracious and kind and they were entertaining and they laughed and they just embraced life. And, and she said, we were having coffee one morning breakfast during this Bible conference. And I looked at my friend, her name was Doodlittle, the Doodlittle family. And she said, why are you able to do this? To be kind and gracious and hospitable and care for me. And she says, hey, she says, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. So she went home and wrote a song. You ask me why I'm happy. You ask me why I sing. His eye is on the sparrow. You see, that's, I know that's very basic and it's very simple, but it's profound. And I'm, I'm saying as, as a child of God, my birthright is to be able to say the living God reigns. Let me give a shout out to a guy. He's here today. I won't embarrass him. This is one of my favorite people in our church. His name's Nick DeGroote. Nick is uh, sitting over here, so I'm going to look at him. And uh, Nick is, he works in our children's ministry. Um, you see the cane. Uh, Nick was born with spinal bifida. Comes from a wonderful family. And he has had 40 plus surgeries through the years. I was told this child will never walk. He walks. Uh, he's always has a smile on his face. The only time Nick is ever downcast is when Nebraska gets beat in football. And I stay out of his way when that happens because he's a surly dude when the Cornhuskers don't play well. And he's had a lot of reason to be downcast the last few years. <laughs> but, you know, I look at Nick and I say, you know, um, as I know him, why, why are you joyful? And I really believe it's because my brother believes that there's a gracious God who watches over him. And so when I live with despair because the bridge traffic is backed up. Or when I'm despairing because the Southern Southeastern Conference Player of the Year had the flu this weekend, didn't have his A game last night. 
head would be. But anyway, when, when I despair, I'm betraying my birthright as a Jesus follower. So, so number four, Jesus says with incredible honesty, your worry cannot add an hour to your life or an inch to your frame. Your worry can add an hour to your life or an inch to your frame. Don't, don't be like the nations that, that run after these things with a panting, ongoing, insatiable desire. My favorite story is in the Gospels is Jesus is in a boat with his men one night. And his men, many of them, were fishermen with calluses on top of calluses on top of calluses. They had leathery faces. They, they had bad crow's feet because there were no sunglasses. They were, in, they were outside in this Judean desert-like environment fishing decade after decade after decade. And they were men's men. They were tough. And so they're going across the lake, a storm comes in, and they drop the sail, and they're straining at the oars because this is not just a whitecap storm. This is a storm that threatens their lives. And they're, they're straining with all their might. And the Rabboni, the teacher, is asleep in the helm. They're just asleep back there. And, and they're, they're straining, and they're straining, and they're pulling, and in and, and, and utter desperation. They have to go. A, a very successful nautical trained fisherman is not going to ask a carpenter for help unless there's no hope. These guys, these, rightfully so, they are proud of their heritage. They're probably fifth generation fishermen. They've been raised on the lake. They, they know this, but in their desperation, they wake up the carpenter and they say, teacher, don't you care? We are about to go under and die. And Jesus stood up and he said, peace be still. Boom. It's wild. And this is what the Bible says. He says that, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And so I read that and I say to me as a Christ follower, and I say to you if you're a believer in Jesus, who is in your boat? Who's in your boat? And the answer is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. So Jesus says, you can't add an hour to your life by worry. When you worry about things that are outside of your control, when you, when you let these things consume you. So let me tell you what, what we're to do real quickly. Three points. Number one, Jesus says, my first point is, consider the ravens or run to Abba, Father. Consider the ravens. 
Give me the cross check, R-U-N. So you consider the ravens. You stop, step back and say, Lord, I, 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 want, I want to just stop. And I want to thank you that, that you made the heavens and the earth. You spoke them into being. Jesus, all things were made by you, through you, and for you. And you're before all things. And in you, all things hold together. And Lord, by your grace and glory, you made the ravens. And I thank you for that. But I want to remember that I am much more important than ravens. So I remember you, Abba Father. I remember the ravens and I run to you. And you... I glory in the unmerited love and favor of Christ poured into my life. Not only am I forgiven, but I'm adopted. Not only am I, are my sins covered by the blood of Christ, but I am embraced by the living God in his triune splendor. Wow. And then in, you drop the nuclear bomb of the word of God on your issues. Now, I think this is just biblical. And let me explain. A few examples. You're angry. You're angry. We all get angry. Disappointed. Some of us get angry and we withdraw. Some of us get angry and we scream. But we're angry. So you, you, in, in that moment when you're dealing with anger, you stop. This is tough. You stop and says, you say, James 1 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because man's anger, whether it's explosive cursings or withdrawal, is not the type of behavior that the righteous God desires to pour into my life. So God, keep me in you. I'm going to take the nuclear bomb of Scripture and blow up this thing. Or you can give you other Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs 11, 32. I think it is. He who rules his spirit is better than the mighty, and he who controls his temper is greater than one who captures a city. Wow. Another example. You, you, Stewardship, talking about life giving, caring, serving other people, putting yourself out there. One of my favorite verses in this area is Proverbs eleven twenty four that says in 25, there's one man who, who holds back what is justly due and it results only in on his own personal need. And there's another man who gives generously. The generous man will prosper and he who cares for others will himself be nurtured by the living God. Wow. So Lord, I, 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 I have a tendency to be selfish. So God, I just want to come before you today and say with my money, my time, that, that there's one who withholds what is justly due and you're, you're not going to bless that. But there's another man who's generous, who's blessed of God. The generous man will prosper and he who waters others will be tended to by the living God. God, I want that in my life. Make me a generous serving person. Or forgiveness. Everyone here has been done dirty. Everyone. People have disappointed you. They've let you down. They've whispered things about you that aren't true. And some of us, many of us have done the same thing to other people. So that you're going along and it comes, it hits you out. Of the, sometimes it hits me out of the blue. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, do, 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 do. And then something comes in, boom. It's a blindside, blindsides me. And I've got to say, well, Proverbs 4, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for those who listen, that it may benefit those around you. Get rid of all malice and anger and brawling and be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving one another just as you've been forgiven in Jesus. So, so Lord, I want to be a person who, is, who speaks well, I want to get rid of malice and guile and slander. 
And I want to forgive as you've forgiven me. Boom. See what I'm saying? Boom. The Word of God is powerful. My last example. Isaiah 55.11 says, The Word of God does not return void, but it will accomplish the purposes for which God has sent it out. Let me tell you something. I, I quote that verse to myself almost every Sunday. I'll be driving home and I'll say to myself, Self, you didn't make that point very clear. You weren't very good. You, you could have used this. Man, you, there's, you had that opportunity and you blew it. And then I say, God, in my stumblings and my, my lack of intelligence, my lack of exegetical precision, I believe this, that God, if, if we take the Bible and read it and think it and pray it and love it, that Holy Spirit, you're going to take this word and you're going to conquer in the hearts of men and women things this week because you're God. And, and you go forward. So once again, there are all types of behavioral models and they're good. They're good. But we're not about behavior modification. We're about the spirit of the living God changing us. Behavior modification is good. It's fine to a degree. But one man wrote an article about seven ways to conquer worry, and he says things like identify productive and unproductive worry. Yes. Accept reality and commit to change. Absolutely. Challenge your worried thinking. Yeah. Focus on the deeper threat. Use failure as an opportunity. Use your emotions rather than worry about them and take control of your time. All those things are good. They're good. You can get that in any self-help book in the self-improvement section of any bookstore in America. But we're about, when it comes to worry, God loves ravens and lilies and grass, but especially he loves his people. By my consuming, paralyzed worry, I will not add an hour to my life. Instead, I'm to trust God. I cry out, Abba, Father, as I run to you and rejoice the unmerited work of Jesus in my life. And I want to drop the nuclear bomb of the Bible on these attitudes to the glory of your name. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want from us because when we do that, we reflect Christ to those around us. I want that because we, we live with freedom and joy and courage and integrity. When we do that... Because his eye's on the sparrow and he watches me. I don't know what's eating your lunch. All of us have worries. Humble yourself before the Lord. Give it to him and be aware of the adversary that wants to snatch the word from your life, that accuses you. When you're accused, run to the cross. When you're beat down, run to the embrace of Abba Father. It's, it, it's so good. It's so profitable. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the tender mercies of Christ. And um, Lord, all of us have worries. Uh, we live in a, a world filled with the potential for worry. Um, and I pray you keep us from being people who are paralyzed by those things which would cause us to lose our joy and our usefulness and our perspective. I thank you, Jesus, that in the middle of this sermon, you plopped this teaching on anxiety 
in the middle of everything so we would never miss it. I thank you for, for men and women who are so gracious and kind, and, and yet they don't understand Abba Father. They don't get the cross. We understand Abba Father. We understand the cross. We have received the Holy Spirit. So therefore, let us walk in the liberty and the joy and the courage and the freedom of a child of God. Um, we commit our way to you, Lord. We humble ourselves this morning before you. And we lift up our concerns to you as we are keenly aware of the fact that we have an adversary that wants to accuse us and belittle us and drink us down. But we have an Abba Father who's so much greater. Thank you the Bible says in 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So come, Holy Spirit, make the name of Jesus great and magnificent and glorious in Jesus' name. Amen.